It is a joy to be back with you and to worship with you. It was also a joy to watch my grandchildren last night and not attend the congregational meeting. But we are thankful to be here with you. I invite you to turn your Bibles. We have two scripture readings, first of all, from the Old Testament, which we'll be looking at this morning, Psalm 73. If you'd like to turn there, page 518 in the Pew Bible. Our text this morning will actually be verses 25 and 26, but I want to read uh, the whole portion of chapter 73 here. A psalm of Asaph. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, How does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly, who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain, and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I said I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream, when one awakes, O Lord, when you awake, they shall despise their image. You shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. In our text here, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I may declare all your works. And then if you would turn over to Philippians chapter 3, I'd like to read verses 7 through 14 of the epistle of Apostle Paul to the Philippians. Again, this is God's word to us. Philippians 3, beginning of verse 7, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost. For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, 
that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time to gather together to worship. We thank You for our faithful Savior, for the Spirit who dwells within. We ask, Lord, that You would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to believe all that You've promised us in Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Beloved people of God, in, our, in the words of our text this morning, in verses 25 and 26, we see that the psalmist describes the process, really, of his recovery from this spiritual sickness, we might say, this spiritual sickness that he had been suffering. And as you read through this psalm, you can see that his recovery from the very depths, in a sense, comes as he gets to the end of the psalm. And now as he gets to the end of this psalm, we might say he comes to what we might say is the highest place for the Christian in this life. Because here the psalmist finally realizes that he can give himself fully and completely without reservation to the worship of his God, to the worship of his Savior. So so listen to what he says once more here in verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now there is a sense in which this is somewhat inevitable. And I think it's important for me to emphasize this. As you read through this psalm, you can see the the psalm's journey from falling nearly to the bottom and then rising back up again. You you can see that this has been the grace of God working in him to bring him back from all of his doubting, from all of his backsliding, we might even say. Because it is, as the proverb says, a righteous man may fall seven times, but he will rise again. And we know that this is true because of the grace of God, his mercy to us, that we will rise. Because God in his grace and mercy causes us to rise. As the psalmist says, what we already read here, you hold me by my right hand. And so God will persevere in us so that we're not lost. But here's the point this morning. This is where we're all headed as those who are in Christ. This is what happened to the psalmist. And this is what will happen to us as well. Because this really is the normal Christian experience. Having trials and struggles, having doubts and fears in this life will lead us inevitably to a deeper relationship with Christ. 
Notice how the psalm starts. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. You've probably noticed that many of the psalms begin with praises, with thanksgivings, right? In fact, it's been said that the psalms often begin with the conclusion. And that's what we see here. The psalmist gives us his conclusion. And then in the rest of this psalm, he shows us how he got there. Now, it was a very hard trial. It was a very deep struggle that he went through. He, was almost, he almost stumbled, he says. He, he nearly slipped when he saw the prosperity of the wicked in this world. And you notice his language there. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. Always at ease. Increasing in riches. And when the psalmist looks at his own life, what does he see? I've been plagued all day long. I've been chastened every morning. But of course, you see here that eventually he does come to his senses when he goes where? Into the sanctuary of God. And then he understood their end. And he didn't want to trade places with them. You see, we need God's word. We need God's people. We need to be under the ministry of the word of God. And that's really the the beginning of his recovery from this trial that I think you and I, we all know something about this. We've looked at the, the wicked and their prosperity. But you see, there is more to this than just knowledge about the end of the wicked. There is something greater that happens to the psalmist. He learns something here about more about the, the mercy of God and the grace of God to himself. And this leads him to what he says at the beginning of the psalm. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. And it leads him, inevitably, to what he says in our text. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail. But God, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Look what happened to this man. He works his way through many things in this psalm. And he realizes these wonderful truths about God and about God's gracious dealings with him. And having gained all this insight into the marvelous grace of God in all of its manifestations, he's he's experienced God's saving grace, God's restraining grace in his life, and God's restoring grace as well. And the psalmist is led quite inevitably to worshiping this God, to adoring God as his what? As his all in all. That's where he's headed. And that in itself is not just an end in itself. It's, a, it's rather a picture of where we're all headed in this ever-deepening experience for all of God's people, for you and for me. So in other words, in these two verses, we really kind of find the goal of our salvation in Christ. That this is what salvation is all about. This is what you and I were saved for. And this is what our goal should be. What it must be. Listen to those words once again. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's none upon earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If you just take that statement there, those two verses, it's it's quite a statement. And it's not something that you and I should just lay aside as something, well, we can never attain this. In fact, the point is, 
not only that the psalmist arrived at this place where he can speak of his relationship with God in this way, but really it is showing us that the whole business of the Bible, the whole purpose of the Gospel, the salvation that is yours and mine in Christ is to bring you and me to that same place. We might even say this is a a test of our Christian profession. Because this is the purpose of the Incarnation. This is the purpose of the entire work of salvation by our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. To enable you and me to say these words and to mean them with our whole heart, with our whole soul. So as we begin here, just let me ask you, even as I ask myself, can you and I speak like this? Do you know God as the psalmist knows Him? I think sometimes we kind of lessen what we think about the Old Testament saints. And, and we look over their, overlook their devotion to God Himself. And so whatever else we may have, whatever else we may be able to be saved, you and I should not be satisfied in our walk with the Lord until we can say this. Because this is the goal. This is your purpose in life and my purpose in life. This is what you were created for and this is what you were saved for. And to be satisfied with anything less, in a sense, is really to deny the gospel itself. Because this is the gracious, glorious end of the gospel in our salvation in Christ. To bring us to this point where you and I can say to our God and Savior, right along with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's none upon earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And so my theme is that the goal of our salvation in Christ is to find our all in all in Christ, in Him. And I want to look at this in two ways, negatively and positively. Negatively, nothing else will satisfy the longing of our souls. Verse 25. And then positively, only Christ will satisfy the longing of our souls. Verse 26. So let's begin with the negative. Verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there's none upon earth that I desire beside you. What's the psalmist saying? He's telling us that he's found out from his own experience in this life what life is really all about. And you see it throughout this psalm. The psalmist has found out that there is no one else who can help him. There's no other God. There's no other Savior. There is no one who can help me in heaven or on earth except God alone. When things are going all wrong in his life, when he's really at the end of his rope, where he, when he doesn't know where to turn or where to go, when he needs comfort, when he needs strength, when he needs grace, when he needs assurance... When he needs something that he can hold on to, that he will be sure will not let him down. He has found that there is nothing that can do this except God alone. Everything else, everyone else, fails. But you see, God never fails. And we need to remember here where the psalmist is coming from, because... He's coming from the same place that we all come from. He he knows that despite his imperfections, despite his failures, his sin, the fact that he has not been as near to God as he knows that he should be, 
more or less turning his back on God from time to time. He knows that he could not find satisfaction in, this, in, this, in his own life anywhere else. And he found out that when he was wrong with God, when things were not right with God, he was wrong with everything, with everyone, with everything else. And there was this emptiness in his life. There was no satisfaction, no blessing, no strength, no joy. But even though at this point, when when he could not make any positive statement about God, he could say at least that there is nothing else. There's no one else where he can find satisfaction. There's none, he says. Now, people of God, if if you just think about it, that's actually very comforting for us. But the question is, are we able to use this negative to find the comfort that's there for us? Can you and I say that we've seen through everything in this life, this world that we live in, and we've seen it for what it really is? It's nothing. It offers us nothing. We brought nothing into this world when we came, and we're not taking anything with us when we leave. Have you come to that place in your life? When you can truly see the world around you as it really is? A world that is passing away? A world that is nothing but a broken cistern? That holds no water? You may remember that verse from Jeremiah where the Lord rebukes His people because they've given up. They've cast away that which is of no value at all. With that which is... Of no value at all. Excuse me. They've given up that and cast away that which is of real value. And they've given themselves over to that which is no value at all. Because they've given up on God Himself. Jeremiah 2.13 For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken Me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken We could even say the broken cisterns are polluted cisterns that can hold no water. So have you and I really been enabled to see this old world and its ways, its supposed glory for what it really is? Have we come to that point where we can say, well, I know this much. This world, this world has nothing to offer me that will really satisfy me. I mean, I've tried what this world has to offer. I've experimented with those things. I've played with them. And I've come to the conclusion that when I'm away from God, all is vanity. Vanity of vanities. And none of it can ever satisfy the longing of my soul. That's that's truly what we learn in the book of Ecclesiastes, that only a life lived in pursuit of God, in the joy of God, that's the only thing that will truly satisfy our souls. This is actually an important aspect of our experience in this world. I think it's a vital one. And and it goes back to what we read in this psalm about the backslider. Do you remember what that was? He was slipping... He was stumbling. But but he eventually persevered. Why? Why does he come back to the Lord? Well, we know it's because God perseveres in His saints. But how does God do that? 
How does God make it so imperative for you and I to, to return to Him? Well, well, think of it this way. The, the backslider is a person who, because of his relationship with God, can never really enjoy anything else. I mean, we may try. But really, we're miserable when we try to enjoy the follies of Vanity Fair. Why? Because deep down, we can see it for what it really is. And deep down, we know that it's nothing at all. That really, we're only chasing bubbles floating through the air, and they're soon going to pop, and we will be completely disappointed. And so, beloved, this is a way for us to kind of test our faith. Test ourselves. And and it's really kind of the first step here in our recovery from our stumbling and our slipping in this world. And just like the the prodigal son, by God's grace, we we come to our senses, right? And we suddenly realize we've been eating with the pigs. And even the servants of our father's house have bread to spare. And this is when we realize that because God has truly done a work in our hearts, a work of grace, that everything around us is different, that old things have passed away. And behold, all things have become new. The things of this old world, they they no longer have that charm and value that they once did. And suddenly we realize that when we're not in a right relationship with God, then our world, our lives, our purpose... It's all completely out of whack. We can travel to the ends of the earth in our attempt to find satisfaction without God. And we find out that God's Word is true. And the Spirit confirms it in our hearts that without God there is no satisfaction. I know I'm showing my age here, but the... uh, Rolling Stones were actually right when they sang, I can't get no satisfaction. Not in this world. Not without Christ. That's the first point. It's an important point for us to understand about our lives here on this earth. We all need to understand that there is nothing, absolutely nothing in this world that can satisfy the longings of our hearts and souls except our God and our Savior. And we can spend a lifetime searching for it. But you see, you and I will never, ever find it in this world. It's passing away. That's the first step. But it's not the most important step, which is what comes next. Only Christ will satisfy the longing of our souls. I I think it should be obvious that you and I can't stop with just the negative. It's not enough for us to know that there's nothing in this world that can satisfy us, no matter what the world may promise us of its happiness, its fame, its wealth, its honor, and so on. Even if we see through the lie of the wicked one, because that's what it is, we still need to find something that will satisfy the longing of our souls, or we will be left in despair. And hence you see today the exploding drug use and suicide rate. 
And that's what we find here in this positive statement from the psalmist. Listen again to what the psalmist says. I hope I repeat this enough that it sticks in your mind as well as my mind. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but here's the positive. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What's the psalmist saying? It's an important point because he is saying that he now desires God Himself. Not just what God gives him. Not just what God does for him. But he desires God Himself. This is important because the psalmist's problem the one that you and I have as well, is that in a sense, what he has done is he's, he's put what God gives him in this life in place of what God, of God Himself. Remember? That's, that's why he's so bothered by the prosperity of the wicked. These people are having such a good time. Why am I having such a bad time? Why am I being plagued all day long? Why does it seem that I've cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence only to be chastened every morning? Why did he think like this? Why do we so often think like this? Because we're more interested in the things that God gives than we are in God Himself. And therefore, because the psalmist didn't have those things that he thought he wanted, he began to doubt God's love and care in his life. But you see, now, at the end of the psalm, he's, he's come to that place where he can honestly say that he desires God himself as God. Not just for what God gives him, and not just what, for what God has done for him, but just because he is our gracious, glorious God. Let me put this as strongly as I can. It's been said that the the ultimate test of the Christian is that we can come to that point where we can say that we desire God more than we desire the forgiveness of our sins. Of course, we do desire the forgiveness of our sins, right? And rightly so. This is what brings us to cry out to our Lord Jesus Christ. We we know our sin. We know the the penalty that's against our sin is great. And so we want God to forgive us through the person and the work of His Son. And we cry out with the publican, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Which our God does. Through the glorious and gracious Gospel of Christ. As you and I, as we repent and we believe the Gospel, But you see, that's just the bare minimum of what it means to be a Christian. That's the bare minimum of Christianity. It's just the beginning of this relationship with the God who loved us and gave Himself for us. Do you really think that our God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that He accomplished all of this great work of salvation just so we could be forgiven? Is that all there is to it? Is that all there is to salvation? No, that's just the beginning. And what is the goal? What is the end that God has in mind for us? 
What is, as we said earlier, what is the chief end of man? But to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Enjoy Him. And so the height of the Christian experience is when you can say, yes, yes, I am so thankful for the forgiveness of all of my sins through the saving work of Christ. But what I want beyond forgiveness, what I desire more than anything else, is God Himself. I want the forgiveness of my sins so that I can know You, O God. You know, there are many things that we think we want in this life. And some of them are good things. And and some of them are things only God can give. And we want God to bless us and we want Him to take care of us and we pray for Him that He would do, pray to Him that He would do so, but are we more interested in the gift than we are the gift giver? I mean, we know that when we receive gifts from family and friends, it's more important to love the giver of the gift than it is the gift itself. And how much more should this be true of the giver of all good gifts? The giver of the greatest gift. The giver of our salvation. Beloved, the greatest blessing, the greatest gift of all is to know God and to live in His presence forever. Let me give you another example from the Psalms. Uh, Psalm 42. Uh, It's one that I know you have sung many times, at least when I was here. Uh, And it's in the Psalter. Uh, But listen to those first two verses of Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for You, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? That last phrase in in your Bibles, you might find that actually in the margin saying, when will I appear before the face of God? So what is it the psalmist crying out for? He's crying out for this this direct, immediate experience of God Himself. He he doesn't just want to know about God. He wants to know God. His soul pants for God. His soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Not God as an idea. Not God just as a source of blessing. But the living person of God Almighty Himself. How many times have we read Psalm 42? How many times have we sang those words? Do we really know what it means? Is this the desire of our hearts? Do we hunger and thirst for God Himself? Does our soul pant for God? I think it's a vital matter for us to consider. I mean, what a terrible thing it is to realize that it is possible to go through life and yet never realizing that the supreme point of the Christian experience is to come face to face with God. To worship Him in spirit and in truth. To know Him and to enjoy Him forever. And are we just going through the motions? Or do we really long to know Him? Is He that real to us? Is that what you and I long for? And are we, are we without satisfaction until we have God Himself? 
is the greatest desire of our hearts, the, the highest ambition of our lives beyond all other blessings, beyond all other experiences, just to know God and glorify Him and enjoy Him and to do so forever. You see, that's what the psalmist desires in Psalm 42. That's what the psalmist finally, as he comes to the end of Psalm 73, that's what he's enjoying. Is that what you and I want for our lives as well? Are we satisfied just to know about God? Or do we really want to know Him? We find this same desire not just in the Old Testament saints, but we find it in the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 that we read. What does Paul say that he longs for? That he, he wants in his salvation? Is he saying, oh, I just want the forgiveness of my sins? No. It is much more than that. Listen to some of those verses again. Psalm 3, verses 8-10. through 10. Paul says, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. And how does he end this? Verse 10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. What is the Apostle's desire? He wants to know Christ. He wants to experience Christ in all the fullness of salvation. Think about this. The Apostle Paul's supreme ambition is not to be a soul winner or to be a great preacher, as important as those all are to the cause of Christ. But what is beyond all other desires for the Apostle Paul is to know Him. To know Christ. This Apostle had seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ on His way to Damascus. And there the Lord subdued Him to Himself. And yet what Paul hungers for, what he thirsts for, what he longs for is a deeper, more intimate knowledge, a growing personal relationship with the living Lord in a very deep and real and spiritual sense. In fact, you might know this too. It's, it's also Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus. A prayer for all Christians. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17-19. through 19, A prayer that should be ours as well for ourselves. Paul prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In the New Testament, the word know, gnosko, means to know by experience. Not just knowledge about something, but to know by experience. And so, beloved, there is nothing higher than this. Nothing. The last of the living apostles, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the aged Apostle John, when he's writing his farewell epistle to Christians, communicates that very same desire in his life. And what we need to understand is he does not say that 
you know, this is just something that I desire. But rather, this is something we should all desire. His, his great desire, as we see here, is he tells us, 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, is that your joy may be full. He wants their joy to be full. How is your joy made full? Do you want full joy? How is your joy made full? Well, he tells us that you may also have fellowship with us. That is, that you may share with us as partners in this blessed experience that we enjoy. And, and what is that experience? And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So this does not just mean that you're saved, or maybe even that you're engaged in God's work in this life. It means that, that of course. But again, that's just the beginning for us. You and I, we, we were meant to know God Himself. Remember what Jesus prayed in His high priestly prayer in John 17.3. And this is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. And, and we hear this throughout the Scriptures. This, this pinnacle of our salvation in Christ, that's not the only place. In fact, we even find it when someone asked Jesus about the greatest commandment. What did He say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And this is the first and greatest commandment. What does God want of you? He wants you to know Him. So that you love Him with all that you are. And, and to be satisfied with anything less, that is really to, un, to misunderstand the whole purpose of your salvation in Christ. Don't stop at forgiveness. Don't stop at the blessings that God gives you. The end of your faith, the goal of your salvation is to know God in all of His glory and grace and nothing less. And this is where the psalmist has finally come. He, he now desires God for His own sake. And, and not merely for what God gives him or what God does for him. But just because he's God. That's what you and I must desire as well. Let me put this another way. Maybe, maybe you think I'm going a little overboard with this, but the truth is I am not going overboard enough. The psalmist not only desires God himself, but he desires nothing but God. Nothing but God. And he's clear about this. You know, what does he say? Well, first he says he desires nothing in heaven but God. Whom have I in heaven but you? Think about that for a moment. What are you looking for? What are you hoping for in heaven? Do you look forward to heaven? There's nothing wrong with that. Matthew Henry put it this way, we are never told in the Scriptures that we should look forward to death, but we are told very frequently that we should look forward to heaven. So what are you looking forward to in heaven? What, what is your desire that you desire above all else in heaven? Is it the rest of heaven? Is it that time when now I can finally be free from all the troubles and struggles and tribulations of this life? Is it the peace of heaven? Is it the joy of heaven? Is it seeing all those who've gone before? 
All of those things will be found there. I can promise you that. And we can thank God for that. But you see, those things are not supposed to be our highest desire. They're not supposed to be the pinnacle of our longing for heaven. What must be at the top of the list? To see our God and Savior. To see Him face to face. What did Jesus promise us in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You might even notice the connection there with verse 1 of Psalm 73, the pure in heart. What was Job's greatest desire? Even in the midst of all the suffering and trials that he was going through. Do you remember his words from Job 19, verses 25 and 27? Listen to what this man says, who has suffered far more than you and I could even think about. But this is what he says. For I know that my Redeemer lives and He shall stand at last on the earth. Job believes that Christ will come. He is certain of that. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Job believes in the resurrection. Whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold and not another. He can't wait to see God. But notice how he ends all of this. How my heart yearns within me. Is this the yearning of your heart? Is this what you long for? Is that what heaven is to you? Is this the one thing that you want more than anything else? To see your Savior face to face. Beloved, let's, let's not be satisfied with the, the worthless, the disappointing, glittering trinkets of this world. And let's not be satisfied with just knowing about God or just being saved from our sin. But rather, let, it, let us make this our prayer, that we want to know Christ, that we are going to keep pressing on to lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of us. Because the ultimate purpose of our salvation in Christ is to bring us to God so that we don't just know about Him, but that we may know Him and experience Him in His glory and majesty and His truth and His grace and His mercy. So that you and I can join the psalmist and say these very words, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's none upon earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so thankful for the gracious Gospel. The great work that You've done through Your Son and by Your Spirit in our hearts and lives. Not just to forgive us of our sins, but to bring us to Yourself so that we might know You in all Your goodness and greatness, in all Your love and mercy, so that we might enjoy You both now and forever. 
Lord, help us to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of us, for we ask it in His blessed name. Amen.